Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. But I will try to project. Let's pray here, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, give us grace as we seek to glean from your word an appropriate response to wicked rulers in a wicked age. As people who've been redeemed by you, as your saints, we seek to balance various different Christian virtues, graciousness, and also a pursuit of justice on behalf of our fellow citizens and especially those who are of the household of faith. I pray that you give me grace in this time. I pray for a movement of the Spirit that he may impart these things to our minds and to our souls. And we praise you and we thank you for this ahead of time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this afternoon, we're going to make one final pass through Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. And as all the previous passes have imparted critical wisdom to us, this one will as well. And the wisdom that we will glean from this this week pertains to how Christians behave as citizens under the oppression of tyrannical political rulers and judges and police. And I... uh, can assure you that this isn't going to be one of those sermons where the preacher has a political axe to grind and so forces his agenda into the text. As you have probably already observed without me even saying it, how Christians ought to behave as citizens under the oppression of tyrannical political rulers is a prima facie observation and lesson from our passage. We have here an account of two Christians, both of whom are Roman citizens both of whom are robbed of due process, slandered by powerful men, delivered to a mob, and through the pretext of a legitimate legal process, punished severely by the state. Having been in this passage for several weeks now, I ask you, do I misrepresent that situation, or would you say that that's an accurate depiction? Well, in case there remains any confusion, I want you to look to the text once more before we get into this any further. So Acts 16, starting again in verse 16 and going through the end of the chapter. Now it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a servant girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, 
But being greatly annoyed, Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. And it left at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit had left, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews and are proclaiming customs that are not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And the crowd joined together to attack them, and the chief magistrates, tearing their garments off of them, proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods, and when they had inflicted them with many wounds, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, who, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the jailhouse were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your house. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his household. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them, and greatly rejoiced with his household, because he had believed in God. Now when day came, the chief magistrate sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly. No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they brought them out, they kept requesting them to leave the city. And they went out of prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brothers, they encouraged them and left. Now, having gone back over the text with you once more to hopefully reintroduce this and with a, a different mind toward civic responsibility and the judiciary and how we as citizens are to respond. I want to take a step back as we get started, and I want to remember some of our very recent context. 2020 was the year that most of the visible church and even many in the invisible church completely flubbed it with respect to the relationship between the state and Christ church. And flubbed it is as charitable of a description as I can give. By way of painful reminder, there were basically four camps within the visible church. There were those first who were right for the right reasons. Those who were constrained by the word of God and able to respond with clear minds and clear consciences to what was happening and who rightly recognized from the word go that though there may be times when Christ's church needs to take steps to protect its members that is our responsibility, that is in our purview, and we will never bow the knee to Caesar 
who tells us we cannot even gather or visit our own members or fellowship together as a people, things which are, of course, fundamental to our faith. So first camp is those who were right for the right reasons. Second camp, though, is those who were right for the wrong reasons. And uh, these people came to the right conclusion, but that's just because they have an anti-government bent in general. Government says left, they're always going to go right. Government says right, they're always going to go left. But at least these people weren't smearing the people who refused to let the government tell them they could not meet in their own church buildings. So we were grateful for that. That's the second camp. Third camp was those who were wrong for the right reasons. So this would be MacArthur in the early days. Okay, they were concerned about something that is often a problem, and that is Christians who lack submission. Christians who just want to go their own way, want to buck authority. That is uh, an anti-Christian sentiment. But they misapplied that concern because they did not understand the signs of the times, and eventually they came around. But their concern was at least a righteous one, though they applied it in the wrong way. Finally, though, there were those who were wrong for the wrong reasons. These are men and women who infiltrated our ranks. These are unbelievers. Um, Francis Collins, if you're familiar with that name, would be chief among them, perhaps. They taught the church in that time as best they could to bow the knee to Caesar and to not make a distinction between that which belongs to Caesar and that which belongs to God's, but to give all things rather to Caesar. These people were wrong because they don't care about the word of God and they're not actually Christians. Their statists and what they promoted in Christ's visible church was idolatry of state. But having recognized these four different responses, if the truths present and highly visible in our text had simply been acknowledged, then there would only have been two camps. There would have been the camp that responded rightly for the right reasons and the camp that responded wrongly for the wrong reasons because in this space we will always have the children of the devil with us. But there would not have been the other two confused parties somewhere in the middle. And in pursuit of these truths on the relationship between church and state, the citizen Christian and political and judicial rulers, we are going to enumerate our study into points, beginning with here an overarching truth that pertains to the magistrates and the lictors in our text, the latter of which, if you recall, are loosely equivalent to the police of our day. They are the ones who beat and imprisoned Paul and Silas in our passage. And here is that overarching truth, which is also point number one. Human rulers and law enforcement are accountable to God as his deacons. Human rulers and law enforcement are accountable to God as his deacons. And the passages of Scripture that speak most directly to this are 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13, but I think the first or the uh, clearest statement rather comes from Romans 13, so we'll look there now. Verses 1 through 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which, are, which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, to start, God as sovereign has appointed every governing authority. So, as far as God is concerned, there is truly no rogue regime. God is sovereign, 
And so the fact that an authority is guarantees that it has been appointed by God, because otherwise it would not be. And God's sovereign appointment of rulers becomes the basis for his judgment of those who unduly, keyword there is unduly or unjustly, rebel against these authorities, which is the obvious meaning of the text. Again, Paul says that they who have opposed God-ordained government will receive condemnation upon themselves. However, because governments are established by God, their authority is a delegated authority and not, therefore, an autonomous authority. Autonomous authorities may do as they wish, but in point of fact, there's only actually one autonomous authority, and his name is Yahweh. So every level of human society beneath him, which is all of them, but beginning with the individual and going to the family and to the church and to the government, and indeed any government of any form in any context, is a delegated authority. And to the extent that a delegated authority remains within its God-created parameters and fulfills its God-ordained function, the exercise of its authority is legitimate and must be honored by those under it. But when it exceeds or abuses its God-given authority, it must be rejected because that authority has been delegated by God for his purposes. Now, what you ask are those purposes that governments have been given this authority by God? Well, the answer is governments are established by God as agents of good to wield the sword in defense of life and liberty. Romans 13, 3 through 4. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister or deacon, in the Greek, diakonos, of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And of course that lesson was a critical one for the early Christians because it's very difficult to remember the good purposes of government when they are imprisoning your brethren, beating them, and at times murdering them for their faith. But understand that this general truth that government is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil does not speak exhaustively of all governments, nor does it pretend away all the evil that they may do. It merely affirms a general truth, as well as it does establish the responsibility of human governments, which all exist ultimately beneath God's authority. And that responsibility, again, is that governments punish evildoers. First Peter 2 13 through 14 affirms the same. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And that is the scope of their authority. That is the purpose for it. That is the only reason why they have it. And when they exceed and abuse it, instead acting as deacons of the devil rather than deacons of God, they have no authority. Such that as they behave wickedly, they cease to occupy the authority position of 1 Peter 2 and instead come to occupy the evildoers category of 1 Peter 2. And just to spitball with you a potential scenario in which this might become the case, consider maybe ruthlessly beating and imprisoning somebody or two somebodies on the basis of mere conjecture in response to a rabid mob led by lying profiteers 
in a literally fascist cooperation with governing officials who have no higher ideal than to stay in power. And of course, that's not a spitball. That is actually the situation that's occurring here in Acts 16. Uh, momentarily, we're going to consider our response to this sort of thing in this life, but first consider God's response, if you will, to this sort of thing in the next life. And by the way, this accountability that we are about to see pertains to all level of governmental authority. Not just the ones at the top, not just the ones handing down the edicts from on high, but the people at the ground level who are carrying them out, such that when these stand before the judge of the living and the dead, they will not be able to invoke the common justification, which is, I was just following orders, or I was just doing my job. Psalm 82, though, is where we'll look first. God takes his position in his assembly. He judges in the midst of the gods. God's little g here referring to human political rulers. That becomes clear in the next verse. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. That's their job. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, God, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. Indeed, he will rise to judge the earth, and all of its rulers, either at the end of all things or at the end of a particular ruler. Jezebel's example is instructive in this as she's splattered beneath the hooves of horses as a consequence of her evil. King Eglon would be another good example of this, having been relieved of his bowels and subsequently defecating all over himself as a judgment of God. But those ignominious deaths are only pale reflections of what came next for these rulers, and that needs to be remembered. The greatest punishment for these wicked men and wicked women comes after death, and it is hell where they are tormented forever and ever. However, we, of course, remain in this life, so how shall we respond? Well, perhaps the place to start in unpacking this is to understand a very basic truth that has fallen on hard times the truth which I stated in the prayer of praise previous to this. Point number two, Christians by nature love and seek justice. Christians by nature love and seek justice. And that's a sky is blue, water is wet kind of observation coming from our faith. But it is also one that has been all but totally denied by many who claim the name of Christ in our day. I mentioned Francis Collins earlier. He is one of the chief sponsors of fake Christianity. And we often hear from people like him something like the affirmation of rights is a demonstration of a lack of Christian submission. If you affirm that you have the right to do anything at all, it's unchristian because we just submit no matter what we are submitting to, to which we might respond. Do you mean the God-given rights that allow us to obey God? Because that's why we have those rights in the first place. 
And we went over some of this in the God and Government series, but by way of reminder, if you don't have the freedom of association, then you can't fellowship. And if you can't fellowship, then you can't gather with the saints, which is fundamental to our faith. You can't visit the needy. You can't bring meals to people in your own congregation. So then that right exists so that you can fulfill your responsibilities to God. Think about freedom of speech. If I don't have freedom of speech, then I can't do what I'm doing right now very well, can I? Because I don't think that most of what I'm saying here, or any of it, is regime approved in this country. Think about freedom of mobility, which was taken from people in this country. If you don't have that, then you can't go to work, as was the right to work taken away. And I told you then, I had a tile job that week when all that broke loose in the state of Ohio, and I went and did it. Because I understand the responsibility that the Lord has given me to provide for my family, and I also understand that without the corresponding right to work, I cannot fulfill that. So I wrote all of that off and went to work for the glory of God. So no, it's not unchristian to affirm justice, to affirm rights, and to point out when injustice is perpetrated against us in the form of our rights being trampled on. And it certainly is not wrong to seek punishment for evildoers. And until 10 seconds ago, no Christian believed this cause the Bible. And how clear it is on this. God's law, for example, did not suggest punishment. God's law required punishment. And different punishments, depending upon what you did. If you murdered somebody, you were put to death. If you murdered somebody with your mouth to the effect that if your slander had been received, they would be put to death, you were also put to death. If you stole, though, you had to repay. But the law carries consequences, and those consequences were not optional. What about grace, you may say? Well, what about the grace of not having rapists and murderers on the street to continue to rape and murder because they were executed? What about the grace that is given to their prospective victims who will not be victims now because they are gone? And what about the grace to all those who might have committed those sins, but the law became a schoolmaster, a school teacher to them through the consequences that it brought to bear upon those who broke it? That is, as I call it, the grace of the law. And it is a great grace. But to further prove a point that absolutely should not need to be proved, consider also just our recent reading through the Psalms from this very afternoon. And let me say here that if you think that I somehow coordinated our Psalm readings in order to coincide with this particular sermon, in order to prove this particular point, you give me way too much credit for being able to prepare this ahead of time. In fact, I prepared this sermon last week because I didn't know if Anthony was going to be able to be here for sure. And all of those psalms prove this point as well. So I just took those out and put the ones in from this week. Just to give you a concept of how justice so pervades the Psalter, let me remind you of what we read just earlier. Here are some excerpts from Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. When I am afraid, I will trust in you and God, whose word I praise in God I trust. In anger, bring down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Now that sounds kind of justice 
But let's see if we can find the same concept in the other three psalms that we read earlier. And next, we'll just keep going in order. Psalm 57. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will call to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send his loving kindness and his truth. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all of the earth. Clearly there is a call for justice as well. Psalm 58, as we continue. Do you speak righteousness, O gods? Again, that refers to human political leaders. Do you judge with equity, O sons of men? Know in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you prepare a path for the violence of your hands. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions. O Yahweh, let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along like the miscarriages of a woman which never behold the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the living and the burning alike. The righteous will be glad when he beholds the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Notice there in particular the response of the righteous. That would be you, Christian. To the fact that justice has been given. And what is the result? The result is that men learn that there is a reward for the righteous and there is a consequence for the unrighteous. Therefore, they are reminded that there is a God who judges. Let me also just add that in these psalms, you see them praying to the Lord for justice. But in the Psalter and in Scripture generally, you see that justice being doled out primarily through human hands, providentially. It was the event at Meribah, which was God doing it all on his own, but principally he works through human hands. Lord, train my hands for war, my fingers for battle, would be an example of that. Now, let's see here if we can go four for four, Psalm 59. See if we can find the same concept. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from workers of iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have lain in wait for my soul. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Yahweh, for no guilt of mine. They run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to meet me and see you, O Yahweh, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous, treacherous in iniquity. Behold, they pour forth speech with their mouth. Swords are in their lips where they say, Who hears? But you, O Yahweh, laugh at them. You mock all the nations. Paul and Silas could well have spoken those same words with respect to their situation. But what of the fact that we are supposed to love as Christians? Well, of course we are supposed to love. And of course we do love. That's fundamental to our faith. But when I was a child, I thought like a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. And in this instance, that means being capable of more than impish, one-dimensional thinking with respect to this. It is gloriously true that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
but it is manifestly true that it does not do so in a way that obliterates judgment and with it justice. You remember when the thief on the cross said as he hung on his cross justly that he did so justly? You remember when he said that to our Lord? Did Jesus correct him and say no? Did Jesus correct him and say that the punishment of the state shouldn't have been handed down to him because of peace and love and all of that stuff? No, he didn't. Thief was right to recognize his guilt. And the fact that he did recognize this and how he was deserving of punishment was what made his salvation possible. And that's true with all of us as Christians. We don't get to the point where we understand that we don't deserve to be punished. We get to the point where we do understand that. And therefore, the Lord imparts grace to us through that understanding as we turn to Christ who bore our punishment for us. A thief was not wrong to acknowledge that justice had been served to him. And at the same time, Paul and Silas were not wrong to acknowledge that justice had been robbed from them and insist upon redress and the situation being addressed, which leads us to point number three. And that is, submission to tyrants begets more tyranny, which is a violation of Christian ethics and virtue. Submission to tyrants begets more tyranny, which is a violation of Christian ethics and virtue. And that is why Paul does not. Look again to verses 35 through 39 in Acts 16. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, Having beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, they have thrown us into prison. And now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept requesting them to leave the city. Now, why does Paul respond that way? Is it an exercise of his pride? Is it him saying, I don't like the way that you've made me look in public, so I'm not just going to let it go that way? No, I think if this were an exercise in pride, then an apology would probably not have sufficed. But either I think if that were the case, he probably wouldn't have stopped until, politically speaking, he had their heads on pikes which because of their foolish rush to judgment and punishment, he absolutely had the ability to achieve as a Roman citizen. So then, if this is not to satisfy his pride, why does he make them acknowledge their fault without actually making them pay the price for it? Why make clear that he has the power of the law and that he can use it to destroy them and yet not do it? Now, the answer, as previously alluded to in this series, is, I think, pretty obviously to gain leverage. Leverage that was used for the protection of the saints at Philippi. You have this burgeoning religion that is viewed as a religious cult. If you recall, even Jews were not given quarter in the city to practice their religion. That's why the ladies had been meeting outside of the city gate. And they have no respect from the powers that be. Now they do, though, because of what has happened here and what they have done to Paul. That gives him great leverage over them 
which can be used for the protection of the household of the jailer, protection of Lydia's household. And it would seem that Paul learned this maneuver from Christ. You ever wondered why, although Jesus said, I am, and thus claimed Yahweh as his name in nature many times, the following didn't happen at other times? In response to that, John 18, starting in verse 3, Judas, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he, Yahweh. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Why? For religious theater? Why did two to six hundred armed men get thrown to the ground with a word, even though, for example, when he said the same word in John 8 to the Pharisees, nothing like this happened? Well, the answer is found in verses 7 through 9. Therefore, he again asked them, after throwing them to the ground with the pronouncement of his name, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these, meaning the eleven, go their way, in order that the word which he spoke would be fulfilled of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Now, had it not been for that display of divine authority and power, do you think the disciples would have been let go? Now, it's nonsensical to think that they would have, considering that they are arresting and soon to execute Jesus for the crime of sedition. How is it that the men who minister with him and preach exactly the same message and teach exactly the same thing are not guilty of exactly the same crime and deserving of the same punishment. Of course they are. Did Jesus have any leverage prior to him doing that? No. In the way that people being arrested typically don't have any leverage. How often are there conversations between police officers and perps of this sort? where they start making demands and have the liberty to do that. How did he gain this liberty? How did he gain this leverage? By throwing down hundreds of them with a word, which was the point, to protect those that belong to him, as Paul has done here as well. And all of this leads us to point number four, which is our final point. And that is that a Christian's response to tyranny must always be most directed by love of God and love of others, especially those of the household of faith. Now, the point has been made that we are lovers and seekers of justice, but we don't even love justice more than we love Christ's sheep. So we do not submit to tyranny for the sake of not feeding our brothers and sisters to the same tyranny. It's true of the culture writ large, the society writ large, but it is most true of those, again, of the household of faith. And however their care is best accomplished, that determines exactly how far we push the legal process and our rulers. And that principle is clearly seen in the example that I just gave you from Jesus, also though very much from Paul. And morally, ethically, and legally, Paul and Silas have every right to run this thing all the way up the flagpole. And if circumstances were different, surely he would have, because when circumstances are different in the future, you will see him do exactly that. And that is, of course, a reference to the circumstance with Festus and Agrippa all the way in Acts 25 and 26, which we should be getting to sometime this decade, I guess. <laughs> but here, 
while Paul will not submit to tyrants, neither will he exercise his rights fully, because to do so will definitely cause harm to the community of believers in Philippi. Ask yourself what happens if Paul were to exercise his rights fully and succeed in this respect completely. Well, the two magistrates that are there get removed, and two new magistrates are going to be appointed over this region, over the Christians that are now here that have been led to the Lord by him. And does Paul have any leverage over these gentlemen? No, in a sense, he has the opposite of that. Because now they will come into their position knowing that their predecessors were excised by this, in their minds, weird religious cult. And so it isn't going to prevent them from breaking the law in order to afflict these people. It's just going to lead them to pay attention to the jot and tittle of the law, to cross their T's and dot their I's in the same way that the kangaroo court that adjudicated the matter with Jesus did. They had witnesses. They were all just liars, but still they had them so that on paper it looked right. They will make enemies of the state instead of having now friends, not friends as a matter of their will, but friends as a matter of the fact that they can lose their jobs if Paul so chooses to exercise his rights as a citizen. All that will be lost if he continues to push this. So when the Christian community would be hurt, we stand down, because to not do so is to no longer pursue justice at that point, but rather to pursue a personal grievance and the satisfaction of that above all else. And I hope here that you are all listening to this because the likelihood that these lessons will become necessary for you given the state of our country is certainly not nothing. I have already been put in situations like this before. If you recall, for those of you that were with me at the Apple Festival many years ago, matter of fact, I don't know can't even remember how many of you were there. I was almost arrested for giving the gospel in a public park. Similarly to what Paul did, I was told to go behind a food truck because the gentleman was going to arrest me. Um, and I responded by saying, no, I think if you're going to arrest me in a public park for giving the gospel, you're going to have to do it in front of all these people. If you recall this situation, he did not. That ended up getting run all the way up to, I guess it was the sheriff. They told me it was the main man. I had a conversation back and forth with him about whether he was going to arrest me, and he kept not answering my questions. So I said, well, whatever, buddy. You're going to do what you're going to do. So I'm going to go back to doing what I was doing. You, as church members, are likely to face this situation. We have already crossed this Rubicon. As citizens in this country, you may remember that situation in Moscow, Idaho. They were singing psalms outside, well, socially distanced, and they were arrested for it. And what did they do? Do you know that story? Does anybody know that story? They sued them, and they won. Was that righteous? You're doggone right it was. That is being salt by shedding light. That is being a preserving agent for this society and for your own people in the household of God by not allowing them to do that. What happens if they are permitted to do that? Well, and the law is not brought to bear, and the law, therefore, is not a schoolmaster. It is not a teacher, and they keep doing it over and over and over again. 
bring the law to bear, especially upon those who are making the laws and most responsible for enforcing them. I'll give you another example that you might encounter. Pastor Dan sent me an article this week about DEI and companies saying out loud that they are not hiring white men because they are white men. If I may, and I hope speak with biblical principles here on this, if something like that happens to you, you should sue them to the Stone Age. To the glory of God. Because again, the law is a schoolmaster. And that is a preserving agent for this society and a protection for your people. Because you have many brothers and sisters in Christ who have uh, a Caucasian nature. It is not wrong to hold them to account. It is wrong to hold them to account in a way that does not serve the best interests of God's people or your civilization or your society. So again, it is always dictated by a law of love above all else. But as Paul said, no, you should say no. But do so for the same reasons. And I hope that this was helpful for all of you moving forward. And at the same time, I hope you don't need it. But if you do, again, I hope you bear this in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for this lesson from your word, Lord. We thank you for your care of your people. We thank you for the example that you gave there in Gethsemane. We thank you for the way that that is reflected in the behavior of your servant, Paul. And we pray that you give us strength and courage should the time come when that sort of a response is necessary for us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.